we all experience trouble in life, national problems, like, say, financial recession, pandemics, family crisis, trouble in your family, maybe financial trouble that hits your, it hits your home, or maybe a death in the family. Or maybe it's just a personal difficulty, like sickness, or maybe sin, foolishness, failure that's brought on, trouble in your own heart. Whereas we all experience trouble in life, the question is, where do you look for help in the midst of your trouble? Really, where do you look for help. In Isaiah chapter 41, our sermon text for today, the Lord invites everyone, and when I say everyone, I mean he literally is speaking to the entire earth in Isaiah 41. The Lord invites everyone to consider the options. And in chapter 41, there's only two options. You can either find help in the pantheon of gods or you can look for your help in the Lord God of Israel. So the context here as we come to chapter 40 and 41 of Isaiah, the context is last week in chapter 40, we understood that God's people, Judah, are in captivity in Babylon. And God promises to deliver them, and then he guarantees his promise by his power. And do you remember how he articulated his power about being the God who, who measures the, the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand? I did that one time, and there was only a teaspoonful that could fit in the palm of my hand. But God says, all the waters of the earth, this is how big I am, God says. Now, if I can, if I can measure... If I'm the God who flung the stars, named the stars, and makes sure that all the stars are staying where, where they're supposed to be, and not one of them is lost, then I can take care of you, God says. So he promises to deliver them, and then he guarantees his promise with his power. That did not stop in chapter 40. That continues in chapter 41. In fact, one of the hardest things about this section of Isaiah is figuring out where something stops and where something starts. Everything is sort of like a chain link that overlaps and connects to each other. And it just loops and connects and keeps going. And so to understand this, you have to go a little bit into the next. And then to understand the next, you kind of got to loop back into this. So our text this morning, chapter 41, links to chapter 40, Because God is continuing to reassure his people, I will deliver you. I'm not only willing, but I am able to deliver you. So here are God's people in captivity in Babylon, not Assyria, but in Babylon. And then you will see in our text that God tells Babylon... I am going to send another 
king against you. Now, in our text, it's unnamed, so we don't know who he is, but we find out in the coming chapters that God is going to send Cyrus of Persia against Babylon. And just like Babylon overtook Assyria, Cyrus is going to overtake Babylon. So when he's speaking to Judah in captivity, he's also telling Babylon, I'm going to deliver my people from you by conquering you. So in a way, both Judah and Babylon are in a shared experience of national trouble. They're all experiencing trouble. God's reassuring his people, and he is inviting Babylon to consider, who's your help? And by way of inspiration and extension, God says to all of us, whether we're in captivity or whether we are experiencing national, family, or personal troubles, who's your help? And even more than that, that one that you're trusting on, are they actually trustworthy? Are they actually capable of helping you? So if you're taking notes this morning, I'd like to give you an outline of this chapter right up front, and then I'm going to read the whole thing. And I'm going to read it rather slowly because I want you to see this flow. This is a beautiful text. And what the Lord is doing here in chapter 41, in verse 1 through 4, the Lord invites everyone to consider an important matter. So all of chapter 1 is sort of like a courtroom debate. Some of you were on the debate team. It's not going to surprise you. I wasn't. But the Lord invites the whole earth to a big debate. And it's kind of like being in a courtroom. The problem is it's not a formal judge, jury, and, you know, end result. But God is the one arguing the case. God is the one who is the judge and the jury in this particular situation. But he invites everyone to come with your own arguments. Let's reason together. This is not the God of, say, chapter 12 through 30-something, where God was booming, roaring about judgment. This is the God who is reasoning with us. Now, make no mistake, his reasoning is quite powerful and convincing. But he's not roaring. He's reasoning because of his love. So in verse 1 through 4, the Lord invites everyone to consider this important matter of who is their help in trouble. Verse 5 through 7, the Lord reveals how people naturally respond in fear and run to their gods for help. But then in verse 8 through 20, the Lord reassures his people that they do not need to live in fear because he is their help. 
verse 21 through 29, we close out the chapter, but not the thought. We close out the chapter, and the Lord calls the gods. He calls the the pantheon of gods to make their case. To see if they can help those who trust them. Very interesting courtroom debate situation going on here. And then that links to chapter 42, which we're not going to deal with today. But that links to chapter 42 because the Lord gives his solution, his ultimate help. Behold, my servant, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. God with us, the God who helps. So let's read Isaiah 41. And as we do, here's my prayer. Here's my goal. That your fear will fade away as you see the glory of the God who is your help. Do you live in fear? Or are you one of those who is just absolutely confident and fearless in life? You have that bumper sticker on the back of your car. Well, you probably don't have a car. You've got either a, you know, a Land Rover or a Jeep or a motorcycle or something like that. But you've got that no fear bumper sticker. And you just live life with this absolute confidence. Well, whether you are the one who lives in fear or the one who just lives life with no fear, the bottom line is who do you actually turn to for help and can they actually help you? God's going to argue the case with us this morning. Let's read Isaiah 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and sends, and sends, pardon me, and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, 
You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 11, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand, It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Verse 14, fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water, there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we might be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you're nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Verse 25, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. 
He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, He is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look... There's no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Did you get that sense of the courtroom scene, the trial, the debate that's going on, and how God is saying to the earth, I want you to listen to me, and I want you to listen in silence, and yet there's an invitation to come and to reason together. Bring your proofs, bring your arguments, let's talk about this. Because we all experience trouble, and we all turn to someone for help in the midst of our trouble, but the question is, who do you turn to for help, and can they actually help you? That's the question that you must have on your mind this morning. Who are you really relying on for help in life? And can he or they or it actually help you? God puts himself and every other God that we might look to for help on trial. And we learn two important facts from this debate. Two important facts. Number one, the gods can't help you because they're nothing but a delusion. That's fact number one. The gods can't help you because they are nothing but a delusion. Look again at verse 5. God says when he acts in the world, specifically talking about uh, in verse 2, when this one is going to come from the east, um, most assuredly every commentator that I read indicated that this was Cyrus of Persia coming down on Babylon. When I first read it, I thought he was talking about um, maybe the Babylon's coming, the Babylonians coming, or the Assyrians coming. But we've moved into future tense now in the latter half of Isaiah. And so this threat is Cyrus coming against Babylon, this one who is coming, who tramples kings underfoot, makes them with, with like dust with his sword, like stubble with his bow, and he passes on in safety. When that happens, look at verse 5. 
what do the coastlands do? And the coastlands is the metaphor, metaphor for all of the peoples in even the far-flung islands of the earth. Just everybody, everywhere, not the people of God in Israel, but everyone. What do people naturally do when trouble hits, when there's crisis happening? What do people do? Verse 5 through 7. People naturally live in fear and run to their gods for help. Look how God describes it. The coastlands in verse 5 have seen and are afraid of what's about to happen. The ends of the earth, what are they doing? They're trembling and have drawn near and come. Everyone is helping his neighbor and saying to his brother, Be strong in the face of adversity. Trouble's coming, but listen, we can do this. And so who are these neighbors who are exhorting and encouraging and helping each other? Look at them. Verse 7, they're craftsmen, they're goldsmiths, they're um, iron workers who are making their gods. So the craftsman says to the goldsmith, hey, listen, you're doing a great job. Keep going. When the people of earth experience difficulty, and fear, they naturally run to their gods. And the silliest part about it is, they have to make them first. <laughs> but when they create their gods, look what they say to each other in verse 7 at the end. It is good. Showing the same language of God when he created man. When man creates his God, we look at it and we say, it is good. And then what do they do? They strengthen it with nails. They strengthen their gods with nails. And then they put them in place and nail it in so that the gods can't fall over or be moved. It's ridiculous. And God has an name. He hadn't even put them on trial yet. He just simply is talking about what men do who don't trust in the Lord God. Listen, God says the fact is the gods can't help you because they're nothing. You've got to make them before you can trust them. So look at verse 21. He begins with this uh, futility of the gods, and then, and then toward the end he starts back around, and he ends with it, verse 21, and he calls the gods to trial, and he says, okay, gods... Here's your opportunity. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Look at verse 23, speaking to the gods. Tell us, what's coming next? Really, tell us so that we'll know your gods. See there in verse 23? Your gods, tell us. Tell us something ahead of time. I love this next one. Do good or, or do harm so that we can be dismayed and terrified by you. Just do something to show us that you're actually real. That you have any kind of real power. And then God makes his verdict. Verse 24. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. And those who trust you find you to be an abomination. And they 
are an abomination because they trust and choose you for help. Again, toward the end, God loops back around in 25 and he compares the gods who are nothing to himself. And the proof here is that they can't tell you what's coming next. They haven't warned you. They haven't given you any good news in the midst of all of this stuff. But I have done all of these things. And then look at verse 28. But when I look, speaking about the pantheon of gods, when I look around, God says, among these, there is no counselor, attorney, lawyer, there's no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Can you read verse 29 with me out loud, please? Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. When we experience difficulty and are afraid, fact number one, The gods can't help us because they're nothing but a delusion. Nothing but a delusion. Now we know that about those silly gold, silver, metal idols, don't we? We look at that and we say, that's ridiculous to think that they actually have any power. They're nothing but a delusion. But we have our own gods. And they run the spectrum. Just, I know you're already saying, I don't have any god but my own. I mean, the Lord God of Israel, he is my god. Okay, come on. We have our gods. We really do. You think about it. We have gods on the full spectrum. From the, the, the something is in control to nothing is in control. And on this side of the spectrum, we have the gods, like, you know, the mythical creatures who actually have real supernatural powers. And we believe that there just might be some out there and, and some people believe that they're, you know, they war against each other and that they're accomplishing uh, certain things on earth. And just talk to your neighbors, talk to your coworkers, listen to your family members. And, and even the next time you go golfing, listen to the guy next to you who says that the, the golf gods are smiling on us right now because I just made that great putt. Okay, beside them, Maybe not gods, but ancestors or angels who sort of guide and guard us. So this is happening right now in South Africa, where Sipo and Lungi and, and Bushle and all those are ministering. They, they worship their ancestors and they pray to their ancestors. And so there are these ancestors or angels or maybe saints who can actually interject themselves and, and help us in life. And then, then, let's just save this middle for a minute. And let's come over here. And if we don't believe that 
that someone or something is actually active in life, then we might believe in something like karma, where the life force itself will pay you back, good or bad. That's super popular right now, isn't it? Karma's at work. And have you ever just really started thinking, you know, maybe that's true? I I did good, and now I'm receiving good back. I did bad, and bad things are happening to me. Karma is at work. Maybe out here on the far end of the spectrum, kind of mirroring the gods like Zeus or whoever over here, is fate, where nothing, something is in control, nothing is in control. You can't do a single thing about anything. Fate happens, luck, chance, whatever. You don't control anything in life. And in the middle of all of that, we have our own self-made gods. The God with a capital I of idolatry. Where we, we don't trust gods or ancestors. We don't give up to karma or fate, but we rely on self. My ability to handle life. Come on, we can do this. You've got everything in you to do this. You can. I watched a football player yesterday talk talk about uh, how he envisioned this victory into reality. He was depending on his ability. Some of us don't depend on our ability, but we actually rest in our money. And we feel secure, not because I can, but because I have enough. My future's set because I have enough. Wealth, we rely on wealth, or maybe we have the right people around us. Most, most intimately, that right person in our life, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, And we make a God out of them. I'm okay as long as we're together. Or maybe it's our family. We feel secure as long as our family is together. Or just your LinkedIn friend list or however many associates you've got to make sure that you're well connected. God's fate Ancestors, karma, self, money, ability, connections, all of it. The Lord says, it's a delusion. It's all a delusion. None of it can actually help you in the end. With the really big stuff that matters in life. None of it. Fact number one, the gods can't help you because they are nothing but a delusion. And God says those who put their trust in you are an abomination. Fact number two, when we experience difficulty and are afraid, 
the Lord God of Israel can and will help those who trust him. The gods can't help you. But the Lord God of Israel says, I can and I will. I can and I will. And he gives five powerful assurances to his people. Here, his people are called Israel, Jacob. But we understand that that was Old Covenant. That is a shadow of the New Covenant. Because Old Israel is fulfilled by the Israel the son, the servant, the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 42, and the old covenant people of God are people of faith, and the new covenant people of God are people of faith in the Messiah, servant, son of God, chapter 42, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's servant who comes So all of these assurances are for us who are connected to Jesus by faith. The servant of God in chapter 42 that we'll look at next week, the servant of God is sent to secure all of these things on behalf of God's people because we can't do it ourselves. Our money can't pay for it, and we don't have any human connections that will assure it, not even Abraham. And certainly none of these gods, karma or fate, can do it for us. But God says, my solution is my servant, my king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who are connected to him by faith can have these assurances. Five assurances in chapter 41. Assurance number one. The Lord God of Israel can and will help those who trust him. Why? Because God says in verse 2 through 4, I am he who is sovereign over all things. You know why God can actually help you? Because God is sovereign over all things. Look at verse 2 through 4. Who stirred up that one from the east? Whom victory met everywhere he went. Who stirred up Babylon? Cyrus, who is coming against you? I'll tell you who stirred up. Verse 4. I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. I'm the one who stirred him up. I'm the one who is sovereign over world events. Look at the end. God bookends this whole chapter with this emphasis that God is sovereign over the events of the world. Look at chapter 41, verse 25 through 27 at the end. I stirred up one from the north. He has come from the rising of the sun. He will call upon my name. He will trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter tramples on the clay beneath his feet. Who declared it from the beginning? That we might know and beforehand so that we might say, he is right? There was nobody who declared it. No one who proclaimed it. No one who heard your words, gods. Verse 27, I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news, which was chapter 40 last week. 
Just like the gods can't predict anything in the future or make it come to pass, God says, I not only predicted, prophesied that it will happen, I orchestrated the events on earth so that everything happens as I want it to happen. And then in the midst of your difficulty, I declared to you a promise guaranteed by my power that I will deliver deliver you from it. Gods, can you do that? Say something. Do something. Do anything. Scare us if you can. Fact one, God's can't help you. Fact two, the Lord God of Israel can and will help you. Why? Number one, because he says, I am he who is sovereign over all things. Everything that happens on earth happens under the sovereignty of God, friends. That means you can rest when you experience trouble. Your God didn't forget about you. This didn't catch him by surprise. God doesn't just know about this. He's orchestrating this to accomplish his will for his glory and your good. Everything, good and bad, happens for God's glory and for your good. Trust him. Assurance number two. In fact, let me just pause to say that verse 8 through 20 is just gorgeous because here the Lord makes his case of why his people, us, how many, many, I won't because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but if you are a Christian, you're connected to Jesus by faith and grace alone, then here is God saying to you, You don't need to live in fear. And he gives three big fear knots. Fear knot number one, fear knot number two, fear knot number three. And each one of them is followed by God's personal involvement in your life. And notice the use of his hand. There's lots of hand terminology going on here in verse 8 through 20. God says, I'm not just protecting you from a distance. My hand is involved in my people's life. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to live in fear. Assurance. So this is assurance number two, verse 8 through 10. God says, fear not. Why? I have chosen you to be my servant. I have chosen you. Read verse 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, 
For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. How? I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Not just Old Testament Israel, but the new Israel in Christ. As we read in Ephesians chapter 1, God says to us, I have chosen you in Christ. Look at verse 9. I have taken you from the ends of the earth, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, I've gathered you to be together. I've called you to be my people. Fear not. I'm your God. You're my people. To be chosen by God is the assurance of His personal grace and personal help in our lives. Not only corporately, but yes, corporately. Individually as well. You can rest assured that everything really will be okay, ultimately. Because God chose you by His grace. Ephesians 1 tells us that in Christ, God has given us the blessings that Christ deserved by grace for His glory. He chose us and predestined us and guaranteed our adoption in him. Friend, you are God's and God is yours. Rest in Christ. Assurance number three, verse 11 through 13. Fear not. I will deliver you from your enemies. Let's read the Old Testament type deliverance, the physical in captivity in Babylon type deliverance. And then remember that this is all fulfilled in Christ for the new Israel in the new covenant from not necessarily physical, but but definitely physical death, but spiritual enemies like sin and death and hell. Verse 11 through 13, God says to his people, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you, and boy, doesn't sickness and death and sin strive against us. God says, they shall be as nothing and shall perish. You'll seek those who contend with you, but you're not going to find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. You mean to tell me that there's coming a time when death is going to be nothing at all? Yes. Sickness is nothing at all? Yes. Sin is nothing at all? Yes. Why? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ conquering it through his cross and his resurrection. Verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I'm the one who helps you. 
In this assurance, verse 11 through 13, God says, Fear not, I will deliver you from your enemies. And did you notice the beautiful picture here? In verse 10, God promises to uphold us and protect us with his right hand. And in verse 13, like a father, he promises that while he's protecting us with his right hand, he will be holding our right hand. A beautiful picture of the Father God and his children protecting with his right hand, holding our right hand to give us peace in the midst of our suffering, comfort while we're still in war. God says, ultimately, I got you. In the midst of suffering, God still got us. Assurance number four. Verse 14 through 16. Fear not. First of all, I chose you. Secondly, I will defeat your enemies. Now what? Fear not, you worm. Thanks, God. Appreciate that. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. Like insignificant, small, little slimy creature. I don't know about the slimy, but definitely insignificant. You men of Israel, got to be a little sarcasm there. I am the one who helps you. How does God help us? He says, I'm going to transform you and empower you to accomplish my will. Look what God says he does. He says, I'm not just the one who constantly protects you because you're so weak. But God says, I am going to transform you, little worms, into powerful, sharp tools to accomplish my purposes. This is fantastic. Look in verse 14 through 16. Fear not, you worm Jacob, fear or men of Israel. I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. Okay, a threshing sledge was was a, a agricultural instrument that was made out of timbers and pulled by a, a, an ox, and on the bottom of it, some had wheels, but then this is going to be a new one that has sharp teeth on the bottom of it so that when it goes across the grain, it busts up all the grain into the chaff, and the grain, so that when the wind comes, the chaff is blown away, and the grain stays right there. So this is an instrument for producing crops to, for the farmer to accomplish his purposes. And what does God say? Israel, I'm, gonna, I'm going to transform you from worm to a sharp tool in my hand to accomplish my will. Verse 16, you shall winnow them. Well, back up. Verse 15, I'm going to make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains, crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. Remember, there's the language of 
preparing the way of the Lord. The mountains are being leveled. The, the valleys are being brought up. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Are we going to be pounding our chest saying, look at what we did, how strong we are? I envisioned this into reality. No, we're going to say God did this. The Lord says, you don't have to fear. I'm going to transform you and empower you to accomplish my will. Friends, isn't that the gospel? Just as we are chosen in Christ, just as through Christ God has delivered us from our enemies of sin, death, and hell, God transforms us and empowers us by the Spirit of Christ so that we're strong and can accomplish His will on earth. For his glory. Assurance number five. And with this we close. Verse 17 through 20. Almost a note as if to say. God looks out at the nation and says. By the way this is not just for Israel. This is for everyone who. And then God describes. Who he helps. And why he helps. In verse 17 through 20. I am the God who glorifies myself by providing for the poor and the needy. Those who see themselves as poor and needy and will trust me for their help. God says, I'm all about that. That's how I have chosen to glorify myself. Verse 17 through 20. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Do you see that Israel and them language? It's as if God has broadened the perspective. It includes the poor and needy, the humble of Israel, who will look to God for their help rather than nations and other gods. But he says, I'm this kind of God with all of the poor and needy who will trust me, rather than these delusion gods. Verse 18, I'm going to do it in a miraculous and in an abundant way. Rivers on heights, fountains in the midst of the valley, pools of water in the wilderness, dry springs of water, Trees where they're not supposed to be, a whole bunch of them. Why? Why does God help the poor and needy? Verse 12. So that they may see and know. So that they may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. God helps those who are poor and needy and see themselves as poor and needy rather than creating their own gods, throwing up their arms to karma and fate, or being self-sufficient with their ability, their money, their connections. God says, trust me. I am the Lord. 
your God, and when I say your God, those who will see themselves as poor and needy and come to me for help, not the futility and delusion of all of these other gods. And what we have just seen, friends, is the gospel. It is accomplished and secured through my servant, God says, whom I will anoint with my spirit, and he's not going to stop until he brings justice to the nations. That's next week. But for today, as we listen to this debate, my prayer is that your fear will fade away as you see the glory of the God who is the help of everyone who will trust him. Let's pray together. God, my prayer this morning is that we would trust your sovereignty in every situation. I pray that by your grace we would feel secure, not because of our ability, but because of your grace. I pray that we would know that our victory comes not by our connections or our money, but our connection by faith and grace through the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And I pray that we would live with that kind of confidence as instruments in our Redeemer's hands so that we might rejoice in all that you've given us and you might be glorified through the lives of those of us you have called to be your servants. It is in the powerful, redemptive name of Jesus we pray. Amen.